Hello, welcome to the podcast. My name is Diane Emerson. I have officially uh, terminated these shows on YouTube. However, you will still be able to view any of my past work there. The shows will still remain there. However, we will only be doing podcasts from here on out. Relieves a lot of issues. And today I'm going to be showing you a clip from two doctors from UCLA. Why am I showing you this clip? Well, I want to show you, I showed you a few video clips earlier that I uploaded. I want to give you, I gave you a curated version of what these kids are going through, okay? Here's the deal. It's a recruiting ground there, okay? And if you're still sitting there with kids on that platform, you haven't heard a word that I have said, okay? Do a search for yourself. Use those fingers. All you have to do is type in four words here. New York Times, actually five. New York Times, pedophiles, YouTube. You'll come up with two articles. One from, let me see, when is this from? Um... One was in, they are both in 2019. One was around the first of the year. The other one was around June. The articles point out the digital playground on YouTube is being used to provide data for pedophiles. Either that or the New York Times is crazy. I think that they're all in on it and the New York Times is signaling to us what's actually going on. You think they're not making a little bit of side money out of that stuff? So anyways, I've got a whole library of work over there. I mean, it's a shame nobody really t pays attention to it. You know, that's the thing about this work. Nobody has ever thought that anything I do is important. Funny, isn't it? Had to beg and scream for support. Not a problem, right? They're just harvesting the children in front of us all. How it's working is this. They get them over to YouTube, okay? They get them to meet other kids. They even have little stage scenes where they have these fake parents there. The fake parents act like, yeah, when my kid told me he was trans, I was okay with it right then. Oh, come on. What kind of parent is going to sit there and say they immediately accepted that? What kind of parent are we talking about? Only a transgender parent they are trying to act like a real parent. That's what it is. This is all a big stage, okay? They're out to rope in the children. And what better way? Funny, you know, nobody's doing any studies. Listen to these doctors. Listen to them carefully. Do they really cite any real studies? If they do, I'd sure like to hear from you. And back like in the old days of podcasting, if you have any questions, just shoot me an email. Type me an email, just like the old-fashioned way. No emojis needed. I'll answer you. Yeah, so they're, they're, they're over there roping in the children. So what they do is they get this peer-to-peer behavior going. Hey, those girls got their breasts cut off. I think that's a great idea. They teach them to hate their bodies. All these kids say the exact same thing. Got to be programmed, right? They all talk about their breasts are horrible. They hate having a period. Well, welcome to the sideshow, folks. These kids are trying to escape what they consider dysmorphia. Who came up with that? Well, they did, okay? The people that are the sickest in the world have been defining the thing for the rest of us, okay? That's not, not a pretty good deal, right? So these sickos are trying to get as many kids as they can. Now, because nobody's doing any studies or any research, I got to tell you, the numbers to get the girls are much higher than the boys, okay? They're flipping those girls probably 10 to 1 as fast as they're flipping those boys, okay? What kid doesn't like their body, okay? They know that they have to get them before they're 25 years old while their brains are still forming, okay? So why don't you take a, take a break here with me and listen to these two doctors talk, okay? The one on the left, they're both transgender, by the way. I probably shouldn't have to tell you that at this point. They both, the one on the left is obviously wearing a fake baby bump, okay? 
uh, the one on the right washed up freak, okay? They are sitting there telling you what they're planning on giving these children, okay? These are still children when they're under 25 in my book, okay? Where are the adults? Where has everybody been? Okay, so you can say, well, this is too much for me. I can't listen to this right now. This is how we got here, okay? That kind of attitude. So pull up a chair. Listen carefully. Do you hear them cite any studies? Kind of, maybe. They hear things. Somebody said things. They cite WayPath, W-P-A-T-H. They now have a new E-Path, E-P-A-T-H, another sleazy organization for transgenders. I talked about that in the past. Not going to go there again. So anyway, so listen to these two slime balls, and you tell me, are they really trying to help any of us, or is this completely eugenics in the open? They got to get those girls. They know that the girls on testosterone will all need complete hysterectomies within two to three years. So you tell me this. Can a woman take testosterone, stop it six months later, you'll get your period back, and they're all misrepresenting the fact you get your period back as a fact they're, again, fertile. Okay, these kids are not fertile. You tell me how a woman takes testosterone for months months or years and stuff and can just pause it like these wonderful little puberty brockers for for the infants, okay? They're all reassuring everybody, oh, it's not a problem. Look, this girl started her period. She's going to be able to have kids. Folks, it's not how the body works. And if you don't worry about um, anatomy than I do, then please let me know, how can a woman take testosterone? Why do they have to get complete hysterectomies after two to three years if everything is going fine? They go in with body dysmorphia, they come out completely mutilated, every part of their bodies. And why is it the girls? Gee, isn't it funny? They're getting the natural girls who can still have babies, okay? That is what they're after. They're after the real women. And you keep supporting these people by watching them. Yeah, okay, thanks. Talk to you later. Listen to these people carefully. Uh, Hi, I'm Stan Kornman. Uh, I'm an endocrinologist, and I practice at at, uh, Ronald Reagan Medical Center. And I'm Shira Grock, and I'm also an endocrinologist, and I practice in the UCLA Santa Monica Center. Um, So we are going to be talking about uh, gender health today and specifically talking about gender-affirming hormone therapy. I'm going to start by just going through some definitions so that hopefully we can all be on the same page. And then Dr. Koreman is going to go on to talk about feminizing hormone therapy. And then I'll be back to talk about masculinizing hormone therapy. All right. So... Um, Again, so going through some of these definitions, when we're talking about gender identity or experienced gender, that's one's um, internal self, internal sense of their their gender identity, whereas gender expression is going to be the external manifestations of your gender. So the pronouns that you prefer to be used, how, um, you know, the name that you choose, the, the, the clothing that you're wearing. Um, gender dysphoria is um, a term to describe the distress that one experiences when their gender identity and their designated gender at birth don't match up. And this replaced um, what used to be called gender identity, identity disorder. Now we refer to that as gender dysphoria. And usually that's diagnosed after about six months of feeling that, um, again, your gender identity and your gender that was assigned at birth don't, don't match up. So we're talking about transgender patients. These are people whose gender identity differs from the um, sex designated at birth, whereas cisgender is going to refer to those that are that are not transgender. A transgender male are individuals that were assigned female at birth, but um, identify as men, whereas transgender females are those that are assigned male at birth 
and identify as females. And lastly, gender non-binary are individuals that don't fit into this um, binary gender narrative, and other terms for that could be genderqueer or gender non-conforming. All right, so now Dr. Koreman's gonna talk about um, feminizing hormone therapy. So feminizing hormone therapy is used to attain a desired level of femininity. Uh, and uh, at the same time, minimize ma masculinity. Uh, and our goal is to achieve and maintain hormone levels uh, that are adequate to reach those goals. Uh, for, the, uh, for the administration of estrogens, we're trying to achieve a serum estradiol generally in the range of 100 to 300 picograms per ml. Uh, and because so many of the trans females are large, uh, it sometimes takes a lot of estrogen uh, to uh, uh, get to the right place. Oh, went the wrong way. So these are the goals. Uh, these are the effects of hormone uh, administration, of estrogen administration. You definitely see a re redistribution of body fat and a decrease of muscle mass and strength, and the patients really want that. Uh, softening of the skin, decreased oiliness, a decreased sexual desire, not necessarily elimination of sexual desire, and in some cases there's an increase of sexual desire. Decrease in spontaneous erections uh, is very common, uh, and sexual dysfunction, that is an inability to achieve a normal erection, is also very common. You get a, a significant amount of breast growth, but not a great amount of breast growth. And most of the patients will find that in order to achieve the level of breast size that they want, they have to get uh, uh, supplemented uh, with implants. Uh, there's a decrease of testicular volume, and uh, that's variable from person to person, uh, and you get a decrease of sperm production. Uh, the sperm production decrease, according to the Europeans at least, is reversible if you want to produce enough sperm uh, to father a child, uh, in which case you have to stop the hormone management. Uh, and then terminal hair growth is decreased, uh, and scalp hair is not really preserved. Uh, and certainly not improved, but doesn't continue to be lost. Uh, and the changes in voice do not occur, uh, so that achieving a female voice uh, requires uh, a different process. So what hormones do we use? We use oral estradiol. I tend to use uh, mainly oral estradiol because it's, you can adjust it to, to suit the individual patient's need very simply. Uh, and we use uh, up to six milligrams a day. Uh, that's been demonstrated to be safe in the European studies. Uh, and I like to use the estrogens twice a day because estradiol is a short-acting hormone and it uh, works better if you give it twice a day. You can also give an estradiol patch, in which case the estradiol is leaking into the 
of systemic circulation more or less continuously. Uh, you can give intramuscular estradiol valerate or cypionate. Uh, cypionate was in short supply recently. I don't know if it's fully replaced. Uh, and you give it every one to two weeks. I usually give uh, these hormones weekly because I don't want there to be very high levels followed by low levels. I would much rather <coughs> there be somewhat elevated levels followed by somewhat lower levels. And we do not use the sublingual estrogens. We also try to have anti-androgenic uh, therapy. The idea is to interfere with the effects of testosterone. So spironolactone is given almost universally uh, in doses of 1 to 200 milligrams a day. I prefer uh, not to go to 200, but to go to 100, because spironolactone, in addition to being a weak anti-testosterone, is also an antihypertensive, and for certain patients the blood pressure will go down, and they will have lightheadedness and uh, not feel so great. Uh, and also, the serum potassium rises, uh, and uh, that can be troublesome, uh, although not very often in young people. So I try to keep the spironal act down, <coughs> down to 100 milligrams a day. It's really only uh, uh, very effective when the testosterone level itself has been brought down because uh, it's, a weak and it's a weak inhibitor. We, use, uh, we do not use cyproterone acetate in the United States, but we do sometimes use flutamide. Uh, we do not use GnRH antagonists or agonists because they're expensive, even compared to the other drugs we use. <coughs> Medroxyprogesterone acetate is a progestin that is anti-androgenic. I don't use that because it tends to increase body weight with increased uh, fat. Uh, I tend to use micronized progesterone, and I use it specifically uh, to uh, uh, inhibit androgen production by the testes because it has a direct testicular effect. Finally, we use uh, finasteride or dutasteride, <coughs> which are 5-alpha reductase inhibitors. Their function is to reduce the effects of testosterone on sexual tissues, uh, and they operate directly at the level of the sexual <coughs> tissues. And they are effective in uh, reducing, for example, hair loss uh, and uh, to reduce testicular size and uh, penile size. Now, what do we worry about? Well, estrogens are th uh, cause thromboembolic disorders, that is, venous clots mainly, and they cause it uh, in, in high doses. But the experience with transsexuals has been that it does not uh, do that at levels of six milligrams per day or below. Uh, there is sometimes an estrogen-induced elevated prolactin, probably uh, too much worry about a very minor uh, effect. 
uh, there are occasional people who are very sensitive to estrogens and get uh, high serum triglycerides, which are not great for your heart, but the, uh, the frequency of significant hypertriglyceridemia is very low. However, we like to measure the serum lipids, the cholesterol and triglycerides, uh, in all our patients. Uh, the uh, increase of insulin resistance may be associated with the obesity that sometimes happens in these patients. Uh, they tend to gain weight, and uh, I try to encourage them not to get obese, uh, but some do. Uh, question about whether an increase in the rate of uh, gallbladder disease is not really settled. Uh, an increase in breast cancer, we blame estrogens to increase breast cancer in postmenopausal women. That question arises in these cases, but the evidence seems to be that breast cancer in transgender men is no higher than breast cancer in cis males. Uh, and finally, cardiovascular disease. The way I think of that is cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of uh, morbidity and mortality uh, in population in the population as a whole, and we should worry about cardiovascular disease in everyone. And you don't get away for free if you're a transgender on therapy. Uh, you still have the same risk as everyone else for every other disease. Uh, and so, how do we monitor patients? I usually see them every three months until we get them settled, and then see them every six to 12 months. Uh, we measure estradiol and testosterone to make sure the estradiol gets into the normal range. Uh, because many of these patients are large, it takes really a, a significant dose to get there. Uh, and we will monitor the electrolytes to check the potassium, particularly if they're on spironolactone. We do cancer screening. Uh, both estrogens and androgens improve bone density, so we don't really think there's a likelihood of uh, diminished bone density. In fact, <coughs> generally improvement over, over what they would otherwise be, but we like to uh, man manage to uh, look at bone density at the appropriate time. And finally, uh, we'll get a prolactin occasionally to make sure it's not going up. And now, uh, Shira will tell us about male uh, uh, masculinizing hormones. All right, so similar to the feminizing hormones, um, you know, some of our goals are going to be to attain the desired level of masculinity and then to minimize any, you know, feminine characteristics that the patient desires to minimize and also to eliminate menstrual cycles in most cases. Um, in order to do this, we want to make sure we're attaining adequate hormone levels, so we are going to be also monitoring those hormone levels and make sure, you know, we're checking on things like the bones. Generally, to achieve these changes, we want a serum testosterone level in the normal male range. Different labs are a little bit different, but generally in the, you know, 400 to 700 range would be appropriate. So what are the changes that people can expect to experience with masculinizing hormone therapy? So <clears throat> definitely um, there can be an increase um, in skin oiliness and acne that generally starts to occur you know, relatively, relatively quickly, about maybe in the first you know, few months of therapy. 
um, facial and body hair growth, that takes a little bit longer. It usually starts around six months of therapy and is maximal at four to five years. Um, scalp hair loss can occur with the testosterone, and that also starts to occur maybe around six months. Um, for, you know, for each patient, it's going to be a little bit different, the exact effects that they have and the time that these effects occur. Increased muscle mass and strength um, can occur. It, it does take a few months for that to start to change. Importantly, um, just the testosterone alone is often not enough, and really um, we encourage our uh, transgender men to also be you know, exercising and lifting weights if they want to attain a certain body habitus. Uh, frat redistribution does occur in, in, um, in the cessation of menses and about, you know, generally occurs by hopefully by six months. Um, for some people that's quicker and for some people that can take a little bit longer. Clitoral, clitoral enlargement um, can start in the first few months and is generally maximal at one to two years. Um, sometimes that can become an issue for people if they're um, having sensitivity in that area. Um, and sometimes that has to be, has to be addressed. Um, vaginal atrophy would be another change as well as deepening of the voice. Um, so for transgender men, we are gonna see some voice changes opposed to, as we mentioned, with the transgender women. And these, the red arrows are to signify the changes that will, are more permanent and that won't go away even if um, you do stop the therapy. Though those are changes that, that should be permanent. So how do we do this? What types of testosterone do we use? And so um, most commonly, we're either using intramuscular testosterone, and that's given every one to two weeks. And similarly to Dr. Corman, I usually would recommend once a week, so you're not getting as many um, high testosterone levels and then low testosterone levels. And the dose is going to vary depending on the person. So the dose for all of this is going to vary depending on um, one's body weight. And so we try to take that into account when starting hormone therapy. The transdermal um, patches are, sorry, transdermal gels. There's multiple different formulations of this, but that's also um, commonly used, and those are used on a daily basis. And, you know, may result in some, you know, a little bit more steady levels, but, you know, depending on the person, people sometimes do better either with the injections or the, trans, uh, the transdermal gels. There's also uh, patches. Uh, we, the issue with these is that a lot of uh, patients can have irrita skin irritation from the patches. So I'd say those are a little less commonly used, but definitely still an option. In terms of the longer lasting testosterone, so there is an injectable testosterone that lasts a few months, as well as testosterone pellets that are inserted under the skin. Um, we don't use these as commonly, and one of the main reasons would be that it's, it's harder to adjust because once you've given that dose, it's not um, easy to, to then adjust the dose. Um, and they do require um, some special monitoring to do the injections and um, special services to do the implants. So what are the things that we're monitoring in transgender men? Um, one of the main things that we're monitoring is the red blood cell counts. And so the testosterone is, is, is a normal effect of testosterone to stimulate uh, the production of red blood cells. And so we generally do see an increase in red blood cells. One of the things that we want to watch for is that we you know, don't want the levels to go too high. And we'll, I'll show you a slide on this, but in general, if you, um, you know, when starting testosterone, the, we expect the levels to go into the normal male range, um, but we do want to monitor to make sure they're not going over the normal male range, which could potentially put people at risk for, for blood clots. 
The liver dysfunction, um, you know, a lot. there's a lot of recommendations out there to monitor liver function, but to be honest, these are really, um, the liver dysfunction really only occurred in older derivatives of testosterone, not the testosterone that we're using today. So this is really not an active concern of ours. Um, cardiovascular disease and cerebrovascular disease, so it's strokes and heart attacks. Um, we don't have any evidence to suggest that this is um, increased in transgender males after starting hormone therapy. Um, you know, in general, as Dr. Corbin mentioned, this is a very, um, you know, common cause of death and in particularly actually more, you know, more so in males than females, but across across both sexes. And so, you know, I think the theoretical concern would we be putting people in a different risk category um, based on the testosterone therapy. We don't have any long-term studies to suggest that that is the case. Um, there was some data that came out recently suggesting that there are some um, minor changes in the cholesterol numbers. And so an increase in LDL, which is in triglycerides, which are kind of the worst bad cholesterols and a decrease in some of the good cholesterols. But we don't, you know, that may, that may just be putting people into the normal male physiologic range. For high blood pressure, again, so we're, um, the, the therapy can lead to a small increase in blood pressure, generally not a, a clinical concern. And breast and uterine cancer, there's, um, there used to be concerns about this, and the more recent data really suggests that we don't really know that there's any increased risk, and it's, um, the, the risk is probably quite minimal or non-existent. So this is um, talking about the, um, the hemoglobin or the red blood cell counts. Push it Oops. again. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, okay, so here they, uh, the HGB, that's the hemoglobin or red blood cell count. You can see before therapy, um, this is in the normal, uh, you know, cis female range. And then as you go through therapy, the numbers will go up. But even, you know, 15, that's the normal um, cis male range. And so that's an expected change. That, that's not concerning as long as we're, you know, monitoring all right, so one, one um, issue that definitely comes up is persistent menses, and this can be you know, very bothersome to patients and frustrating. Generally, we expect the menses um, or the periods to stop within about six months of starting testosterone therapy. And what we would consider persistent bleeding is um, someone who has testosterone levels in the male range consistently and is still bleeding at about six to 12 months out. So the first thing that we want to consider is just the general things that can cause bleeding. So just like in cis females, they can have fibroids and, you know, these are benign tumors in the uterus that can cause bleeding. We always want to think about these general conditions that can lead to, to bleeding. The other thing to start to think about is the dosing of testosterone. And so if the testosterone is dosed every two weeks, maybe, you know, and it's an injection, sometimes moving that to every one week to get more stable levels could be helpful. Um, and again, just making sure that our the testosterone levels are, are in the desired ranges. Aromatase inhibitors are a medication that can um, decrease estrogen, and this these have been shown um, to be helpful and 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 you know stopping periods. One of the issues that comes up is that we we these are also used in conditions like breast cancer, and with long term use, we do worry a little bit about the bones. And so generally, we try to use that for you know six months to a year until things are optimized, so that we could then stop that medication. Um, progesterone is another option to um, sometimes help with decreased bleeding. Um, some people feel that weight loss can be helpful, so testosterone is converted to estrogen in fat tissues. And so the idea would be that if, if someone does have excess weight, sometimes de uh, losing some weight can, can help decrease the estrogen levels. 
And then lastly, if these, if these methods aren't working, then either endometrial ablation or hysterectomy would really be more definitive um, therapy if the other medications are, are not working. And sometimes a hysterectomy is, is part of a patient's plan regardless of this as well. So uh, monitoring is, um, in terms of frequency of monitoring, is going to be very similar in our transgender male population. So we want to see patients um, every few months, the first, usually the first year of therapy or until things are stable, and then once or twice a year after that. And at those visits, we would be you know, checking on the, ch the desired changes, looking at hormone levels, making sure everything is steady and that we don't you know, see any adverse reactions. Um, for particularly for transgender males, we want to be measuring their hemoglobin again every three months in the beginning, and then once or twice a year. And after you know, if we change a, a dose, we definitely you know want to then follow up and see how their hemoglobin levels are doing. Um, we're also monitoring blood pressure, weight, cholesterol, just general markers of, of health. And then a standard kind of cancer screening for, for whatever tissues are present. Um, and so if you um, do have a uterus present, then we would want to be you know, doing pap smears as generally recommended. Same with mammograms. And it just, it just depends on what, what tissues um, we need to, to look at. And then the bone density, you know, as appropriate based, based on the patient. This is you know, always something that's kind of in the back of our minds um, since the sex hormones can affect the bone. All right, so we've you know talked a little bit about some of the risks with hormone therapy, and we you know we also just want to make sure we talk on talk about all the benefits. And so um, you know beyond the desired physical changes, and obviously that's a large part of what patients are seeking when we start hormone therapy. There is you know from our experience a dramatic improvement in just general well-being. Um, you know, unfortunately, there's not tons of data that we can quote for this, but people are starting to look at this more. And, you know, some studies have shown, you know, a significant, sorry, a significant decrease in anxiety. So about a 30, one study showed about a 30% decrease in anxiety scores, um, improvement in depression, and just improvement in general well-being. And I think this is really important in our transgender population because, in general, there is a higher rate of depression and anxiety. And so this is a um, really important outcome that, that we need to remember that people do, do better on hormone therapy. And, and a lot of my patients have stopped taking a lot of their antidepressant meds. Yeah because they don't feel they don't need them anymore and they're doing well. Yeah. And kind of along with that, I mean, oftentimes, you know, we do, we do encourage patients to, you know, especially when they're starting therapy, to be actively seeing a, their psychiatrist just to be able to talk through all the changes that they're going through. So um, in conclusion, the physical changes that you should expect with hormone therapy, they are variable um, person to person, um, and the changes will take different amounts of time to develop so that some of the changes, changes could start in a month, but some can take up to a year to, to become evident. The emotional changes with starting hormone therapy are extremely favorable. And while we don't have great long-term data on the risks of, of hormone therapy in transgender patients, um, probably a lot of the risks that have been identified are a bit overplayed. And so, um, you know, this is where we're over the next you know, decade, we're going to be getting more and more information on, on exactly what the risks are. Hormone therapy should be monitored every three months when we're first starting for about the first year or so or until things are stable, and then should be monitored once or twice a year after that. And any concerns um, such as persistent menses, these things should really you know, be addressed with someone who has experience in um, taking care of, of patients um, and taking care of gender health. 
All right, so do we have any questions from the internet? Okay, let's see here. Okay. So the first question is maybe Dr. Kornman can answer this question. So what's, what is the role of progesterone for mood, sexual desire, and or breast development? Well, that's a good question. The uh, progestins generally have been shown to depress mood. Progesterone itself, the one that I tend to use, is not very strong at depressing mood, so I think it's favorable. As I mentioned, progesterone directly affects testicular testosterone secretion to inhibit it, so that if someone has a persistent high testosterone level after starting on estrogen therapy, I always put them on progesterone. Furthermore, the evidence is weak to non-existent that progesterone really improves breast development. There are a few people who feel that once they went on the progesterone, their breast development proceeded further, but we usually put, put them on it within the first six months, and they're still having breast development from the estrogens at that time. So it's hard to determine whether the progesterone really stimulates uh, breast development. All right. So the next question here is, what should I do if I'm a transgender female around the age of menopause? And um, I, I think I presume this is getting at, you know, what should we, given that cis females have a decrease in estrogen at the time of menopause, you know, what should we, what should we be doing with, with, um, with estrogen replacement? And, you know, this ultimately is going to really depend on the patient. And so if, um, if you are someone that has um, had your testes removed, it's going to be very different because your testosterone levels will be very low if we stop the estrogen. And in those cases, it, it's, um, there's no right or wrong answer, but it would be reasonable to consider at least decreasing the, the estrogen amount um, since that would mimic essentially a natural menopause. Now, for patients that still retain their, their testes, it's a little bit more difficult because when we, if we stop the, the estrogen altogether, their testosterone levels will go up. Um, but it still could be reasonable to adjust the doses and maybe use a slightly lower dose at, at that point in life. Um, I don't know if you have any other recommendations, Dr. Kornman. Well, uh, one of the questions is, will you get symptomatic? A woman who goes through the menopause becomes very symptomatic, has hot flashes, Etc. And that's not the usual finding uh, with the transgenders. And in addition, uh, so if they don't have symptoms, the motivation to use hormones is less. Uh, and my inclination is to stop them uh, and see what happens. Uh, by that time, the testes are usually gone pretty much in terms of being secretory organs because they've been suppressed for 20, 30, 40 years. All right. Um, so the next question here is, what percent of transgender men have persistent periods? Um, so there, there is some data, I think, out of, um, it was a Dutch study that showed at about six months, about 85% um, have stopped having periods. So that still leaves about 15% that are, that are having persistent periods, and then we need to start to address some of the issues, the issues that we talked about. Okay, um, let's see. So what are the effects of, um, what are the effects of hormone therapy on bone strength? 
and either transgender males or transgender females. So yeah, we actually were hoping maybe this question would come up and we, we do have some information on this. And you know, as I think as we both alluded to, we, we don't have great long-term data, but this is something that we are you know, trying to look at. Um, so this was a study that was published um, last year in one of the endocrine journals. Um, where they you know, were looking at patients over a period of two years, and both at uh, transgender men and transgender women. And what they found um, in transgender men, after start this is two years after starting hormone therapy, there was no change in bone density. So that's measured on a DEXA or a bone density machine. Um, in transgender females, actually one of the studies showed maybe there was a benefit, but ultimately when they compared that back to um, cis men, there really wasn't a significant change. So. I mean, what we have so far is, is very short-term data. So, you know, two years is not a lot of time to get bone changes, but it, at least at that point, there doesn't seem to be negative effects. Um, that being said, this is, this is bone density. This is not, these are not looking at uh, fractures or break, breaking bones. Um, they did try to look at that, but there was only one fracture over the period of a year that they were looking. And so we, it's not fracture data, but it, it is um, bone density is thought to be a surrogate for, for fractures. Uh, and and what goes on is that the transgender females are getting high doses of estrogens. Estrogens are good for bone. They inhibit bone resorption. So they should be in better shape and their bone density should not go down with the years as it does in uh, cis women. In the males, the transgender males, they have uh, testosterone tends to increase bone density and it and they're getting testosterone levels that are actually higher than the comparable levels in cis males as they get older uh, so in both cases bone should be protected and I don't worry too much about it because physiologically speaking they're in good bone shape be in good shape yeah okay so um what can you do for gender non-binary patients? So for example, if I want some um, masculine characteristics but not others, is, is that possible? What can, what can we do in those scenarios? So I have a couple of patients like that, uh, and I don't mind giving them low doses of testosterone, uh, and it really makes a huge difference in their lives. Uh, I don't try to achieve any particular numerical goal. I try to achieve a psychosocial goal. I feel good when I'm treated. I behave comfortably. Uh, my life is improved. I think that you have to understand that achieving a particular numerical value in a blood test is not a proper medical goal. It's helping the patient feel well. And I think the, the one other aspect is that, you know, Unfortunately, different, different people do have different responses, and so it's hard to kind of pick and choose which characteristics you would like to develop. Um, so that part is a little bit difficult, but, um, you know, we can adjust, adjust our dosing and adjust our regimens to try to, to achieve different results. Okay. And then, um, can you please discuss persistent pelvic pain um, in transgender men? So um, this is another uh, big topic that can be that can be difficult, and actually, it was another thing that we were hoping we'd be able to discuss, but we're, we weren't sure if we'd have time. Let me see here. Okay. 
So similar to the per, to the persistent menses, you know, we always want to make sure that we're looking at other other reasons per, for pelvic pain. So such things as endometriosis. Um, there are lots of reasons for pelvic pain that we need to make sure we're just addressing the the typical region, uh, the typical symptoms that can happen in in cis females as well. But there are particular things that that can make transgender men more susceptible to pelvic pain, and so the use of testosterone. Um, is going to lead to some vaginal atrophy, and that what that can result in is vaginitis or um, like inflammation of the cervix, and that that can cause pain. Vaginal atrophy itself can cause discomfort, um, and so you know actually sometimes in those cases where even you can use actually local um, vaginal estrogen to help with those symptoms, and it's just a local effect, so it doesn't get absorbed systemically to to affect your estrogen levels. There's other people also postulate that some of the change in weight distribution and change in muscle mass might lead to kind of slight slight changes that could that could predispose to to um, pelvic pain. Um, anyone who's under you know had had surgeries like sex reassignment surgeries that is that is definitely you know you always want to think about you know could there be any complications associated with that that could be leading to pelvic pain. Um, and the emotional aspects are are definitely very real. It can be. Um, really, you know, tough to get the pelvic exams that are that are recommended if you still have those organs, um, and it can be painful as well. And so, all of that leads to to emotional, you know, emotional aspects to to the pain. And you know, it, some people do report cyclical symptoms, and uh, maybe you know things are different at different times in their in, um, injectable testosterone regimen. So, for some of those people, you could consider transdermal estrogen or something. Sorry, transdermal testosterone or something that will lead to a little bit more stable levels. Um, you know, sometimes these are things we have to try and see if they're helpful. And if that doesn't work, try something. Try something else. These are in patients who have not had surgery. However, these are not common problems. They're relatively uncommon. Do we have any other any other questions that have come in? All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today.